Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. Please visit the website Tell your friends, associates to do so and subscribe because we love new listeners. It is episode 109, Mark, Friday, November the 22nd, 2019. And I'll tell you what, Mark, we've got, we have, and I didn't mention this before, tomorrow on the Saturday, we have our staff Christmas lunch happening. Wow, that's early. Yeah, well, it gets gets earlier every year. I think. <laughs> um, so, what the story is, we well, we're pretty, we're a little bit boring, but it's 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 solid and it's a good day or a good lunch. We go down to the local pub, the local hotel in Warrandyte, and they do a very good meal. So we book a table for ten or twelve or so, and uh, everybody rolls up just after morning consults um we're open nine till one um i think belinda's working because it's easy for her to work drive down and work and then head off to the lunch and um then we go and have a a bit of a long lunch yeah and um a few drinks and we also do a little you know the kk the little um chris kringle that the i think it's twenty dollars supposedly that you spend and you draw a name out of a hat of a staff member and you go and buy them a surprise present which supposedly they don't know who it's from but as everybody knows you all work out pretty damn soon and they always everybody <laughs> tells everybody anyway i try and pretend that i that nobody knows who who i have and um yeah um and it gets a bit tricky doesn't it when you when you not not that actually no who i got this year was a little bit tricky i must admit but um <laughs> It can be um, it can be a bit of a challenge, can't it? Finding a finding a little present of complete completely worthless value and worth worthless worthless usage. Um, what are you talking about? Every year you come up with a toady of of for the UPAV conference. People who uh, haven't attended the UPAV conference won't realise that the uh, award for the best. Uh, presentation or is it tech yet yeah, the best presentation at the conference most, yeah most entertaining and informative yeah. Officially, but yeah <laughs> get it right mark um that, that that is an award known as the toady and um and each year you do an outstanding job of coming up with a uh, a a champion uh a champion's trophy of suitable uselessness <laughs> to celebrate the wonderful skills of the, the oratory skills of the presenter who makes uh who gets voted in as the um as the uh, most interesting and entertaining um so i would have thought you have great experience in this field brendan well i must admit this year the the toady award has been selected by Tristan Richmark, who you know well, and he it's a fantastic oh. award. I, I'm not going to mention on air what it is before the conference has occurred because, um, gee, I'm jealous, though, because well, any past winner is ineligible for the award, and so that rules me out because I was lucky enough to win. I think they I got a charity one of 
probably the second conference that we had. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm still working hard to have a chance <laughs> to, to take it home, Brendan. Well, you need to do the other thing, Mark, and that's actually speak um, <laughs> in order to be eligible. And I'm not speaking again this year. I'm hosting a couple of sessions and, or helping out anyway. I've, to- um, I've told you that I, I'm emotionally scarred from speaking since uh, Bob Donnelly literally tackled me and dragged me off uh, when I just went like 20 seconds over time one time. Ah, oh, well, you've got to you've got to um, toughen up a little bit, Mark, and um, get back. You know, it's like riding a bike; you've got to get back on it and get out there again. So, yes, you need to present again, and then you'll be in running for the Tony Award. Yes, and um, they are particularly unique, and for our overseas listeners, they've been well, they've been very interesting. Like one year we gave poems; we gave away some poems. Um, um, we found a street poet one year um, wandering just just around at the time of the conference and we gave the name of the winner or, or, or the actually no this was a keynote person I think um, gave the names of this person and a, a few sentences about them and we wandered off for half an hour and they they managed to write a poem about the person it was quite unique um, but they've been things like a, a um, kangaroo scrotum a bottle opener um the original toady for those who don't know and and there's still a fair few people who locally who don't know why it's called the toady is the very first award was because we want it to be something unusual and different because that's our group um was a a stuffed cane toad holding a bottle of johnny walker whiskey with a with a walking stick um in, in um a bit of a parody of the johnny walker label that you see um so that was why it was called the toady mark from um day one and i think you know that um, yeah. <laughs> i remember it distinctly i think i i had to carry it around for a little while before you know warmly in my hands forming an affection for it before we had to give it to who was the first winner who got the formal toady oh, gee, I'm, try- I'm trying to remember um i cannot I think remember you, got, you, got, you got the second one i think i got the second yeah, one yeah. i'm sure, sure i got the first one um yeah and it can be get get a tad embarrassing i remember um one of the years we had the conference in new zealand and i i got pulled up in customs as i arrived at the international airport in in uh, wellington i think it was and I got quizzed by this quite intimidating Maori-looking man who, as you know, they're quite muscly. It looked like he played for the All Blacks rugby team. And he said, what is this? And it was the Toadie Award. And I, I just oh, I can't remember what it was that year, but it was something a little bit quirky as usual. And I... I told him the story and he said, oh, that's okay, go through. No, it's pretty pretty typical <laughs> laid-back New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, we, I managed to sneak it through. So, yes, um, but getting back to the your Christmas party, the Christmas one, yes. Yeah, so we have a bit of a, a, a lunch and a, and a few drinks and then we give out these um, little prizes or, or little KKs. And, yeah, I've, oh, I think I've chosen a good one this year, actually. They're always a little bit different and, takes me a while to find something. I wander around the shopping centres and just quietly look in the $2 shops as well, Mark. What, um, what, is, what, is, find... what is the, like, most – we have a very similar setup, but the budget, what is the budget for your KK? It's te- it was $20 this year. $20? Um, and, you, and, and that's inflation for you. Um, and you try to you try to stick to it, but, you know, sometimes I go a bit over. Sometimes I even manage to go a bit under, but it's a – 
Yeah, I think I've got a good package this year um, for my KK. So, yeah, that's what's happening this weekend, and um, it should be fun. Um, so there you go. Um, because we have held it at different places, uh, but we always seem to gravitate back in the last few years to the local hotel, and it's just a nice, relaxing afternoon. And if the weather's nice, it's near the river there, Mark, the Arrow River, so you can always wander across there and, and collapse and fall asleep on the grass if you had a few too many um, until, you, until you sober up and head home. Although I think because I'm not working, I'll get my lovely wife, Annie, to drop me off to drive me in there and then um, I'll, she'll be the Uber for the day and I'll call her up when I'm um, half full and um, she can pick me up. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Annie. Bring me so that's the plan, yes. So, but apart from that, we're we're getting a tad worry. I know you've had them up there about the the weather here has been a bit up and down, and we've got a few hot days coming over the next um, week or two, two or few days, and um, we worry about the bushfires. So hopefully, there won't be anything too dramatic. It has been uh, certainly around our area. One of the spots that I go and see the birds, Brendan, um, is uh, over in the Wallamai National Park, and that's one of the biggest fires, well, in the world, I think, just at the moment. Um, th- uh, tens of thousands of hectares have been burnt out of wonderful bushland, but that's about to... It's jumped from um, some of the wonderful country on the western side of the Blue Mountains to the east and is headed towards the central coast, um, and I, much the same as you, hope that um, that the next few days, which looking at my weather app is suggesting the winds aren't going to get too bad, and maybe even on Sunday we might get a couple of spots of rain, um, but um, geez, we hope over the next few days when we hit those low 30s, maybe a couple of high 30 periods that the wind holds down so we don't see those flies flare up or spread to other states. Yes, we certainly hope so and everybody stay safe. Yes. Um, well, I'm going to jump into my first news story and it's, it's, it's not too... I'm trying to be positive lately, as you know, Mark, but this one, well, I can't really put a positive spin on this. Well, maybe I can. It's about elephants dying. Eleven elephants died trying to save a calf that plunged down into a waterfall in a national park in Thailand, according to officials. And as far as I know, so far, six elephants had died after a roughly three-year-old elephant had drowned slipped down um, this little waterfall and they're pretty certain that what happened is some of the other elephants were thought to have jumped into the waterfall to try and save the baby and as we know Mark these um, elephants are pretty um, well they like to look after their own and they're they're pretty sympathetic animals for their own kind and they help each other whenever they're distressed and uh, we even um, I think it's pretty well known that they can they, they show grief when when a part, um, when one of the other elephants dies, Mark. So, yeah, but pretty sad. Um, and this is Thailand's third largest national park. And by the look of it, it wasn't a little waterfall, Mark. I think it said somewhere in the article that it was the park's um, highest waterfall there. So um, it would have been pretty horrific for They, were, they um, were talking in that article about the 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 waterfall having three tiers and a, a total of um of four hundred and ninety two feet. Yeah, it's um yeah, there's nothing to uh 
well, there's nothing too positive about this one apart from the fact they try and help each other. But um, yes, so why did I pick that story out? I don't know. I'm feeling a bit um, depressed now, Mark. You better get, jump onto your first one. Well, my first one is uh, um, a discussion about early neutering that um, that uh, academics from the Royal College in the UK have published in Bet Practice magazine. And I know this is a little bit of a hot button topic uh, amongst veterinarians here in Australia. And um, similarly, among, amongst breeders, the whole age at which you should desex dogs um, has come under a little bit of a, I suppose, a. Um, a cloud. Um, it's been influenced by a number of different studies which talk about um, the increased risk of particular uh, problems associated with um, desexing at particular times. Um, and um, and this one talks about uh, this is this study, the largest cohort study on incontinence in bitches that has ever been carried out worldwide to date. Um, it uh, it does suggest that um, uh, it does suggest that it's a, 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 that desexing, particularly early desexing, has a, a negative effect. It makes the incidence of incontinence more likely. Um, so that will throw up a few um, uh, complications in terms of trying to select what time. Um, it is the best time to dissex our uh, canine friends. Yes, and it does does suggest that um, or confirm that the certain breeds, inc breeds including Irish setters, Dalmatians, Vizslas, Dobermans and Weimaranas that are more prone to early onset urinary incontinence than other breeds. So I expect that those particular breeds um, are ones that you need to have a little bit of a think about whether or not we still do and it's and it's tricky it, it's not just the incontinence is it mark it's all the the growth um potential concerns that that owners and, and breeders bring up in the in the consultation about um when we mention about um desexing at, at um, a young-ish age um but also even bone growth as well i think with some of the larger breeds that they're concerned about um so my question to you mark will be what at what age do you tend to recommend desexing routinely for 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 young dogs and cats and i think it's a, my, i mean my my thought is i always chat chat around the topic and with about the topic to the owners and and talk to them about the extremes of the you know those real real immature desexins at a very young age of only several weeks of age um that occurs especially in the the shelter situation where they've they're dealing with huge numbers and they want to make sure they're desexed when they when they go out to a new home and i think some of the and that's been done for what probably 20 plus years hasn't it mark in those big big um, shelter organizations and i don't think there's a massive a massive detriment um in general um by by doing that um and then the thought and the potential thoughts of doing it um, fairly early on that that maybe they do recover a little bit quicker but you have the complications of of paediatric i suppose anesthesia anesthesia with them um or waiting until they're you know one plus year of age and their their body's matured a little bit more um a little bit what they're suggesting in this article i suppose and um balancing all of that and and also that the 
the um, aspect of the, the, the females potentially coming into season. So so what's your sort of take and what's your recommendation to your clients generally, Mark, for desexing of dogs and cats? Well, unsurprisingly, Brendan, it's probably pretty, the same, pretty much the same as yours. We do, and, and my technique, I suppose, is to uh, to talk to the clients about their expectations. Um, I, like you, don't see the significant problems associated with early desexing. I understand that large breed dogs are, you know, more likely to have problems with the bone growth and potentially um, those tumours like osteosarcomas when they're older, if they've been desexed earlier. Um, and um, now this new study suggests that desexing may influence the rate of urinary incontinence, but I still pretty much come down on the the uh, you know six to six and a half months before they've reached puberty, but after they've finished the largest part of the the uh, their growth uh, influenced by um, the sex steroids before they start those sex steroids start influencing reproductive behaviour. Um, that that and definitely, um, you know, we have our. I, I've, I think I've read some studies that suggest as many as one in eight or so bitches will develop some urinary incontinence after uh, desexing, and I don't know that that would be the the um, the number that we see, but we definitely have a couple. But they're treatable, I find, and it certainly doesn't seem to make a big problem for the client. So yeah, I suppose we tailor it a little bit to the individual expectations. Um, there's always that client that's been to a breeder and been impressed with, you know, do not let your vet desex this dog until it's this age. And I'm happy to do that. You know, we'd charge more for dogs that are older and more difficult yeah. to do. So yeah, I, I'm, I, I still think, on average, we probably do most of them about six and a half months. Well, not surprisingly, we're very similar, Mark, <laughs> as usual. We're on the same sort of level with that. And, yes, I, the, probably what's changed for me over time is that um, I don't particularly become upset when a client seems adamant about um, their point of view with it. I'd, I gently put it point out my thoughts about it and I just roll with the punches with it and I, there's no point becoming upset about it if the client's adamant that if you know they've and it's and, and it's off <laughs> it, it more often than not it's a client that that that, that they preface their conversation with I've been studying oh. I've been or I've been looking up or I have been researching and as soon as you hear those words you um well I just <laughs> um and I just let the nurse deal with it. No, I don't. Um, so they're the ones that you know that they get, they're pretty fired up about the problem. Well, not necessarily fired up, but pretty um, adamant about their their point of view. And then they've probably already made out their mind. And what's the you know? There's no point in trying to reverse that decision if they've already made it. Mark, you can certainly point out your reasoning, hopefully, and and, and thoughts on the matter. And um, I've become a little bit more relaxed about it I suppose over the years rather than trying to win an argument with them in the consultation and uh, change their opinion of it I don't I just don't think it's worth it and if they if they're if they're if they want to have that dog desexed at one and a half years of age and nothing more nothing less then well I'll walk them through the process of, of doing that at that age and 
point out potentially that it may come into season, etc., and um, it will be a bit more expensive to doing it at that age. And that's where I leave it, yeah. So, yes, um, well, my second news story is not, not a nice one also, Mark. It's probably a worse one and um, a bit... Yeah, I'm saddened by this one, Mark, and that's the police are investigating a man, and I think you may have already seen this video. It is quite disturbing. Investigated a man who, who, or are investigating a man who videoed stoning a wombat. And I think one of the saddest bits about this is it was an off-duty police officer, supposedly, who was... um, well, he, th- he thought he was having a bit of thumb, uh, a bit of, um, reason why I say a bit of thumb, a bit of fun because um, through the video he ends up giving a thumbs up to the camera as um, he's, he was driving along um, or he may not have been driving, driving down a dirt road um, in Outback Australia and um, he gets out, gives a thumbs up to the camera after he's been um, slowly stoning this wombat mark um so and he was laughing and carrying on with it but um yeah i don't know what else to say about this but well actually i do the the thing i'd like to say about it is that the the um the the, um, fines for these sorts of things for some of the animal cruelty cases here in australia and i'm sure it's worse um the same in other other countries as well they're pretty pathetic (laughs) for, for what you know what people may do to to kill an animal pretty horribly, and it would suffered tragically. Um, not just this wombat one, but you know we see some people who are using bow and arrows to shoot kangaroos and all sorts of things, or even driving, you know, deliberately driving their cars with their bull bars into into kangaroos and other species, or driving over native species, and they get found out one way or the other, and they just get a a fine of uh, several hundred or a few thousand dollars. I think it should be a lot more than. than well, what it Brendan, is. I've got a, a, a um, we'll find the story, but um, uh, a gentleman was caught um, trying to smuggle some reptiles out of um, New South Wales. And I think his case has just been settled. He was sending them overseas and his case was just uh, sorted out earlier this week. And he ended up with. Um, very significant fines and jail time. Um, and so uh, the magistrate in that case did point out the animal cruelty aspects of um, of that particular international trade and the animals were taped up and sent in in regular post, as I understand it. Um, but, um, but there does seem to be some, um, I don't know, I suppose some inconsistency across the board. But, and, and the other thing about this, I, you've hit the nail on the head once again, it's that um, that there's often, uh, what's the right way to put this in a podcast? Um, the people involved often have, uh, um, this is not an isolated incident and may reflect some of the way they think, you know, their thought processes, their faulty thought processes um, may may play a role in this. And, and there is um, some very clear academic evidence that people that are involved in this sort of violence towards our native species may uh, well be likely to be involved in other forms of violence to other humans, maybe even. So I do think that I would like to see this area of um, 
of behaviour taken a little bit more seriously by our courts than it, on the surface it appears that it is. Yes, and I think the only way it can be or potentially will be changed if they report on these sort of articles um, and or have it, have it published and people see it for what it is, Mark, and it's something that should be punished, yeah. So enough for um, Judge Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> what is your last news story, Mark? Brendan, I've got to tell you that my last news story is obliquely related to a recent experience of mine. We here in Newcastle on the uh, east coast of Australia, just north of Sydney, uh, we were uh, we pleasantly had the uh, company of um, uh, Dr. David Blyde recently, who um, our local National Parks and Wildlife Service had organised a series of uh, um, marine mammal workshops, um, uh, which I was lucky enough to attend, and um, and uh, and it was uh, there's some pretty interesting stuff in this field, Brendan. The the uh, I. I've been a regular attender at these sorts of events and um, some of the new stuff is genuinely new. But um, my article is obliquely related to that in that Dr. David Blyde told us a lot about um, the diseases um, that many of our marine mammals are suffering, including some of the viral and bacterial diseases and even things like toxoplasmosis um, that are obviously the result of environmental change. And this particular article talks about a specific example in the Northern Hemisphere where the melting Arctic sea ice has been linked to the emergence of increasing evidence of viral disease in marine mammals. And the theory is that the loss of ice opens up pathway tr pathways for disease transmission amongst uh, many of the, the uh, pinnipeds um, and sea otters that uh, um, you know, live in the uh, northern Atlantic and European oceans. So um, this 15-year study published recently in the uh, journal Scientific Reports reports how fairly dramatic reshaping and absence of historic sea ice may have opened the pathways for contact between Arctic and subarctic seals that previously prevented that previously presented insurmountable obstacles to contact um, and this has allowed for viral uh, particularly focine distemper virus introduction to the very north uh, the northern Pacific Ocean. Um, so it's a, it's a timely warning that some of the aspects of climate change that, you know, we've talked about the fires and whatnot, but um, things like uh, viral diseases amongst marine mammals might not be the first thing that you think of as you think of the ice flows melting um, in the space between Alaska and Russia, Brendan. Well... All I've got to say about that is, Mark, um, were you at our conference when David Blyde, the very person you spoke about, um, helping um, with those seminars or those little um, that little training episode, he gave a little dinner speech at one of our conferences. Were you there? No, it was not, Brendan. But but I I know Blyde, and I know it would have been bloody hilarious. 
you missed out, and it was um, well. Uh, he said he asked. He said to me, "What what what do you want for the for the um, presentation? Do you want something academic? What do you want?" I said, "No, just just tell the story about how you got to where you are, and tell some funny stories." And um, yeah, as you can imagine, he told some um, quite interesting stories about his work. So he's, he, I presume, he's still head vet at SeaWorld um, in in. Um, in Queensland, is that right? On Brisbane? On no, no, that's exactly no. right. And he does. He it's a little bit like um, uh, our good our good friend and primary researcher uh, Doug Black. That um, they seem to have had. There seems to have been a golden age for ostriches for Doug, and similarly for um, for Dave. Uh, that um, you know, there was once a time when SeaWorld had maybe several helicopters on the go, and they he would be. F- zipped up and down the coast to um, various strandings or uh, marine mammal events. I don't think there's quite as much money in SeaWorld as there once was. And um... <laughs> Yes. Well, I think at one stage he managed to convince the Army to um, supply um, or, the, or the Air Force to supply um, transport for um, some of these savings of, of this marine life so yeah he he tells some quite very funny stories so he's a very good after dinner or during dinner speaker mark so yes um well there we go there's our four news stories and um I'll try to be a bit more positive next week, Mark, but I can't <laughs> promise anything. Uh, I have, a, I keep promising a review that's very positive, but I haven't quite finished um, looking at this particular item to review it. So um, you will know what I mean when I do review it soon, Mark. So I think we need to jump into our main topic, which is, well, I'm going to quiz you on this one because it is about what well, we've labelled it cosmetic procedures in birds and what do we mean by that well it's those those commonly requested aren't they mark even even by the the occasional visit to your vet clinic from a client who's not a very keen bird owner but they just want to bring their bird once every well once a year sometimes um just for the wing clip or the nail trim or the beak trim or other sort of supposedly cosmetic or, or minor procedures there and um there's certainly some interesting thoughts about whether or not we should be performing some of these procedures on them and um i think we're gonna we will go through the Poss uh, briefly <laughs> about the the actual method of doing it, Mark. Um, you, you're going to sort of walk us through the the method of doing it and your thoughts on these and the ethics, I suppose, of of why we should or, or why we should not be doing this. So, how? Well, my first question to you, Mark, is how many of these do you do? Is it a common common request from a client? Um, no. So, uh, what I mean by that is, is it a common single request from a client that they phone up and they say i want a wing clip on my bird or a nail trim or a beak trim etc and that's that's what they want to bring their bird to the vet for they don't want to bring it in for a general health check or, or blood screen or, or viral testing they they just want one of those it's procedures. very 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 common like i would say well let's think of some numbers we would have I suppose something of the order of um, three or four thousand bird clients, and we would get um, one of these requests from one of our existing clients or a new client every single day. Um, and so I would say it's um, one of the most common phone calls that we get. 
So what is the what's the script for better word <laughs> um, that you would be asking your reception staff to go through with the client on the phone when they ring up, Mark? Especially well, that script new is exactly the word. It's you don't you know need to search around. You do need a little bit of a a spiel. You need a thing to say to these people. And and I suppose the difficult thing for my receptionists is that we. You know that many of the clients who call up will just, as you said, want to come in. Oh, I've got my bird. Uh, the breeder said I should get this done, and I'll just, you know, want to come in and get that done. Um, and oftentimes we're handicapped by the not just the fact that the breeder or uh, the um, the person who sold the bird uh, said that, but that they often, as they, um, you know, we've we've definitely had cases where people have pick the bird out of a cage and as they're handing it over, whack the scissors onto the wing and lobbed off half the feathers. So when our reception staff get these calls, it does take them some time to explain that we really need to have a consultation and talk about the reasons that we're going to do it and talk about the risks associated with doing it and particularly the specific risks that might be a little bit uh, breed specific um, and make sure that uh, that we don't go into this whole procedure um, blindly and then end up with a, a bird that's permanently damaged and unable to perform its normal behaviours. So that's the first thing. And, and our reception staff are great at can convincing people that this is a much more serious thing than initially on the surface it appears and that it is worth talking to one of the vets about why we're doing it and and uh, what the consequences might be both positive and negative. I think we're exactly the same and that the, the key factor there is that especially for that new client and I'd even broaden it out for any species so you might get similar with a a snake, for instance, that the client wants a probe in for a sex identification and, and we would be saying exactly the same thing, that we need to have a consultation first because we do want to check that the animal's healthy and, and, and that we're not probing a snake that we shouldn't be, for instance, um, and that we can go through some of the basic husbandry, etc. even if down the track with that particular individual we may charge a lesser fee than a full consultation for the minor procedure we are certainly not seeing a new a new animal with without doing a consultation a basic consultation so we're exactly on the same page with that mark um, because I, i'm sure it's a, a very common thing for the birds where they would be then that they would then turn around on the phone and say hey all I want is a nail trim of my bird and I thought it was going to be X dollars, $20 or whatever. Um, and you want to charge me, you know, $100 or, or whatever for a, a consultation. And um, it can be a bit of a challenge kind of can, um, convincing them or at least explaining the fact that, hey, this is why we are doing or recommending. But I think the other doing. side of that coin is that, that uh, you know, Sometimes it's best not to convince them. Sometimes the people, those people who, you know, want the $12 nail trim, beak trim or whatever, they are precisely the people who are going to lodge a board complaint when something goes pear-shaped. You bend over backwards to do these things, cutting corners or not, uh, 
you know, following the appropriate procedure, making sure that uh, you've explained things and managed the expectations. Um, and and invariably, those people are the ones who are the ones that uh, end up having the loudest whinge. And Brendan, you know my philosophy. Um, when we first opened our business, we used to have to have every client who called us, you know, make sure they all come in. Now that I've gotten a bit older and uglier and, and uh, you know, um, worry less, what's the phrase that um, uh, the IDGAF um, theory of old age? Um, that generally speaking, uh, I really, the people that uh, aren't interested in learning about why it's a good idea to understand the wing clip or the nail clip or the beak trim, those people probably are not going to be good long-term clients and maybe I don't need to spend my time with them. You don't give a start <laughs> is what you're trying to say. Yes, no, I agree totally and that's the same with any other species. I think you tend to, as Nia is trying to chase the chase the bad clients um you want to encourage the good ones so yes exactly so um you mentioned that it is a very common um request for this so well why don't you sort of we step through each of those or a few of those procedures mark and let's maybe start with let's start with hopefully one that may be a little less controversial a little bit easier to deal with initially yes. and that's the nail trim so why would they want the nail trim for their bird and and what's your method of doing that um if you can briefly explain that and why would you not do a nail trim well the main reason that people want nail trims is because the nails are too long and the main way that they find that out is that the birds get caught in particular positions um they might um uh you know and i got the 90 degree rule, Brendan, if the nail extends through uh, greater than 90 degrees of a full circle, then it's likely to act like a hook. It'll get caught on um, some cloth, a towel, a cage bar. The bird will panic and f when they panic, they f try and fly away. And if the foot is hooked firmly around something and they try and fly away, they can give themselves significant trauma. So excessively long nails do need to be managed. But but, Brendan, the question is, is trimming them the right thing to do? And oftentimes it's it's about managing the behaviour of the bird. So many of our cage birds would um, be in a cage with a uh, horizontal perch of uniform di diameter um, and they would have at one end of that perch a water bowl and at the other end a food bowl. Both those bowls would carry more than the daily requirements of that bird and so it would wait bare on the central part of its foot, not having to flex the flexor muscles of its leg um, to grab onto anything and just wander from one end, have a drink, wander down the other end and eat some seed and complete its daily requirements. Um, so the key thing with these is that the husbandry of those birds needs to be managed so that they do things. The, per the feed bowl should be put 
at the end of perches that are nearly vertical. So the bird has to flex those muscles high up the leg, drive the nail into the perch, preferably a natural branch, often something really hard like an iron bark. And as they flex and drive, the very thin tips wear very quickly, Brendan. So what do you say to the client that then brings that little a picture of their aviary or, or the actual cage if it's a um, smallish cage into the clinic and you see the picture of that cage and you see a nice a nice little dowel perch um, one diameter wrapped with sandpaper sandpaper <laughs> oh my goodness Brendan this is this is the um so this is my this is my quick spiel I'll try and do this as quickly as I can when People a long time ago when people fed only seed to birds, many birds were vitamin A deficient. Vitamin A deficiency leads to dysplasia of epithelial surfaces. One of the consequences of dysplasia of epithelial surfaces is that they are often very smooth. The papillate feet of the weight-bearing surface of most birds, if they are vitamin A deficient, end up being really smooth rather than the grippy little micro fingers that help them to grab on. Now, one day, one person who cared about birds a lot but didn't think that thoroughly said, oh, here's a sick bird and it's got smooth feet and here's my healthy bird and it's got rough feet. I know what I'll do. I'll put sandpaper on the perch and that'll make the smooth-footed bird rough and therefore its health will return. This is completely illogical. The food, the, the foot is smooth because the diet's inappropriate and not because the perch is too smooth and not because it doesn't have sandpaper on it. And in fact, you take this to its logical conclusion and the diseased, faulty uh, epithelial surface of the vitamin A deficient bird will only be worsened and lead to bumblefoot if it's placed on an abrasive, dangerous surface. So, sandpaper on perches is one of my <laughs> buttons. You push it, I'm likely to have my head explode. <laughs> well, I think you've explained that quite thoroughly there, Mike. So, the process of actually trimming. A nail that requires trimming, Mark. What, what, what equipment do you use? What instrument do you do? You use a high-speed bird? Do you use a cutting disc? Do you use nail clippers like, um, like, like those guillotine nail clippers, or do you use all of the above? Which ones work? Which ones don't? Or, or do all of them work? And and what's the pros and cons of using them? Well, they all do work, Brendan, and um, and I think the key thing is that you've got to pick the individual circumstance and use the right one. The key thing here, I think, for me, is the stress of the bird. So for many birds that have really bad feet um, and maybe even a keratinopathy and maybe have other issues that we've got to deal with, we will anaesthetize them and we'll use a high-speed burr wearing the the uh, nail down from the tip and that has the big advantage of if we do hit the germinal tissue the so-called quick then when it bleeds it's only just the very tip and it's very easy to control whereas if you use one of those guillotine type uh, um, nail clippers or the scissor type then it's very easy to cut across a significantly higher portion of the quick and get 
well, a very, very dangerous amount of blood. And and stopping the blood in these bird nails, it's hard enough when we're dealing with dogs, but um, these bird nails can be uh, particularly frustrating to deal with if you overdo it. So what do you use on those ones that you unfortunately do manage to cut them back a little bit too far and they do start to bleed? What, what are the options to try and arrest that, that, that dripping or that bleeding? Well, the first thing is that you don't use exactly the same stuff that we use with, uh, with our dogs. So we would frequently use as a styptic, as an agent to uh, assist with clotting in those nails, um, something like potassium permanganate in dogs. Um, but in the birds, uh, they the amount of potassium permanganate required to affect a clot will be enough that the bird could have a chew at it afterwards and will be violently ill, um, throwing up all the way home if you do that. So steer clear of um, potassium permanganate. We generally use a mixture of corn flour and maybe a little bit of touch of um, of, uh, of uh, um, surgical glue, uh, The, the that that seems to be, in most instances, um, the way to stop the bleeding. And the other trick um, is that the two big arteries that supply blood to the germinal epithelium run down the lateral side of the phalanges. And if you, you know, you don't need to um, to pinch them off too hard to shut them down, but you can definitely control the bleeding um, by just gently applying pressure to the lateral aspect of the phalanges. And that you, you'll know that um, if you've got a huge amount of blood and the drops just keep building up, whatever your styptic of choice is, you'll never stop it because it just keeps getting washed off by the next drip. But um, if you can slow that blood up a little bit with just some gentle pressure on the lateral aspect of the toe, um, then you can let the corn flour and, um, and, uh, and uh, uh, glue have its uh, desired effect. So where are you doing this procedure, Mark? Do you, do you like to take the bird out of the consultation room away from the client or do you prefer to do the actual procedure in front of the client? Well, it's a great question because one of the philosophical aspects of our practice is we like to make sure um, that we're doing things in front of the clients. We want them to see what we do and make sure that we uh, are trying, that they see we're trying to do things in a fear-free fashion. But for most of these things, um, the because we're entertaining a short general anaesthetic to do it, um, then most of the time we're taking the bird away from the client so that they're not exposed. And and I suppose even though I talk to you like it's fairly routine to whack out the high-speed burr and, and uh, knock off the tip of the toes, um, it's not a, a, I've never had a client that I think is perfectly comfortable um, with you having their bird anaesthetized and a power tool right next to them. Um, and, um, and just for their relaxation and my focus, um, I tend to separate the clients from that experience. Yes, good points, Mark. All very good points. You're a very wise man. You are a very <laughs> wise man. So let's talk about, well, uh, the next one I want you to talk about because the third one we have spoken previously um, and we will sort of do a summary on that. But the second one is beak trims, Mark. Tell me about the reasons for and the philosophy behind beak trimming and, and the, the, the 
pathogenesis of it. Why do we need to trim these beaks? Well, just like the the uh, toenails, um, the whole process of the beak getting excessively long or malocluded or not matching up uh, with the the opposing beak um, is regularly associated with some deeper problem and so it's always worth out us taking our time to investigate that process and and while many of those things I would say in my experience that by far and away the most common thing is that there is some fault uh, almost certainly a metabolic bone disease type fault where the bones of the face or the lower jaw are just very slightly bent and don't necessarily meet up and occlude with the usual pressure. And so certainly the the, the large majority of birds that have that problem, uh, by the time they come to see us, the metabolic bone disease is ancient history and the bones are firmed up in the position they are and we are going to be looking at once every 12 weeks or six months uh, getting the bird in and and trimming the bird to trimming the bird's beak to a shape that uh, makes it comfortable for it to eat um, we do when we do this try to shape the beak in such a way that it will make it easier for it to wear f- longer um, so that hopefully we're arranging things that there's fewer and fewer times um, when the bird's beak will need to be trimmed. And, even, and particularly for those malocclusions that are not symmetrical, that might, uh, you know, the so-called scissor beaks, um, we might be working to put a groove in one side so that we can guide a beak that's riding off to the left, back to the right. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, a much more detailed and complex procedure than just whacking out the nail trimmers and taking the tip off the beak. Yes, it's a bit of an art, isn't it, Mark? I've seen um, some papers and also some demonstrations at conferences of the various different sort of angles and, and calculations to try and um, repair or, or help, help those those malocluded beaks grow back um, towards the normal normal it's almost like orthodontic work with some of them isn't it where where those more complex ones where they do literally you do end up using um, some little pins and bits and pieces and, and tension tension wire or, or, or bands etc have you played with those as well with the Definitely. more complex I'd, I'd say almost every uh, veterinarian that's had anything to do with macaws at some point in their career um, would have had one of these chicks come in with scissor beak and and of course, the the uh, the the gold standard at the moment um, is to whack one of those trans sinus pins in and and uh, um, put, as you described it, an orthodontic arrangement to pull the tissue back into li- alignment, the tissue of the upper beak with the lower beak. Um. So yeah, we they they are. It's um. I, th- I suspect it's like human dentistry that there's a whole you know series of appropriate ways, textbook facts to deal with. But then there is a lot of art, a, a lot of um, uh, sculpting um, that uh, the good quality um, experienced uh, veterinarians do with these animals to improve their quality of life. Yes. And for the ones that you do happen to get a little bit aggressive, Mark, and you end up with a, a bit of blood oozing out of one of the um, regions of the mouth, um, of the beak there. Um, what, is it the same sort of process as far, far as arresting that, um, that little bleed there that you recommended for the nails or not? 
it is a little bit um, more frustrating um, because the, of course, the birds need to eat and drink, and they the forces they can generate with those beaks, even if they're not perfectly occluded, are fairly significant. And so um, it does end up being a little bit of a frustrating thing. And and I think that's one of the reasons um, that it's worth taking the time to um, to have the bird anaesthetized and be very slow and gentle in the approach. Um, if you get a major bleed on those beaks, then it can become you know, a, um, a question of placing an implant to hold a prosthesis in place uh, to prevent continued ongoing trauma. And so doing it properly um, and uh, becoming familiar with the uh, the tissue and the amount of keratin you can remove. And I always, the other thing that always strikes me about these guys is that um, while the beak looks just like, you know, a bit of an adapted fingernail whacked on on the face, um, it has channels through it through which very, very sensitive nerves pass. And, um, and there's no doubt that uh, much like we would having a tooth extracted, the birds have um, some, <coughs> some sensory discomfort after these procedures, Brendan. So it hurts, is what you're saying? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so the last condition that we were going to talk about, and I think we co covered it fairly thoroughly on a previous podcast, Mark, and that is wing clipping in birds. But do you want to do a, a four-minute summary of that, Mark? <laughs> of course. Um, the, the first point to make is um, this is another one to talk to people about, and it's surprising how many people just assume that that's you know it's standard i'm gonna um trim my bird's wings and and i'm surprised how many people are shocked when i go you know what i don't really want to do this i'd really prefer um that your bird could fly and do the things that normal birds do and you know what happens when they fly they their heart beats faster they flex many more muscles they ventilate uh distal parts of their air sac and all these things are health engendering so if we're going to stop that you've got to be prepared for the fact that your bird will be less healthy as a consequence um, and and it is always surprising to me that many of the people that we get to get to the consult stage um, actually elect not to get it done Brendan. And that episode that we did talk specifically, the main topic was wing clipping, was, I just looked it up, episode 69, Mark, and <laughs> you can go to vetgurus.com and just search for wing clipping, or it's called feather, or just episode 69 and you'll find it. So that's the one to download. And we have a whole main topic on feather, sorry, on wing clipping um, way back in episode 69. So, well, I think we should... Um, are there any other sort of closing comments? Were there other other sort of supposed cosmetic procedures in birds that you wanted to touch on or briefly mention? There is one, Brendan, and um, and I've used this to fairly good effect um, a number of times. Um, that, so I've have had a number of um, of. Uh, budgerigars in particular, but also cockatiels, females who have nested for an extended period of time and they bend their tail feathers when they do this. 
And, um, and of course, because the tail feathers aren't in the normal position, they can get soiled or damaged. Um, and one of the tricks, Brendan, is to um, restrain the bird carefully, wrap it in a towel so it's protected. But the steam from a kettle, once it hits the keratin of the ruckus, the main quill down the centre, um, once that is warm and hydrated, um, it will straighten. It's almost like magic, Brendan. You can uh, uh, arrange the bird in such a position so it's shielded from the steam coming from the kettle, aim it at the keratin of the tail feather, and they straighten out. And you look like a hero when these birds who um, really uh, were headed for losing the tail feather now have a beautiful, straight, healthy one. And it's always good to look like a hero, isn't it, Mark? I, um, I try my hardest. Yeah. Um, so you don't use a hair straightener? <laughs> Me personally, I don't, it's not quite long enough. Well, ditto here, Mark, somehow. Ditto here. Well, I think on that note, Mark, we will finish up this week. And, uh, yeah, don't forget to visit the website and search for that previous episode, number 69, for wing clipping in more detail. And on that note... We will say Huru from the Gurus. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.